You're listening to Solar Insiders, a fortnightly update on the ins and outs of the solar industry and what it means for consumers. With Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading solar industry veteran, Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Solar Analytics, suppliers of intelligent solar monitoring, and SunWiz, the creators of the powerful PV cell software. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Solar Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and One Step Off the Grid and the EV website, The Driven. Joining me is Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics. Nigel, welcome back. Thanks, Giles. Hi, listeners. Great to be here once again. Yeah, hi, listeners. And um, look, uh, pretty exciting. This is our last episode before the federal election, Nigel. Um, Any tips? (laughs) (laughs) Bring a big bottle. <laughs> I, I noticed that you're fleeing the country beforehand. I am actually. I'm not going to be here, so I'm going to actually have to vote in advance. Which, uh, as someone highlighted to me the other day, is much less painful and much easier. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. So I'm going to go cast my vote on Saturday, uh, which is great because I can ignore the next week then oh, and, and all the all the BS and just go. Yeah, look, I've just got to make a call here. Um, but yeah, and no, I'm actually sad. I would have very happily um, sat with a bunch of friends and a, and a big stiff bottle of something uh, and watched the outcome just in case. Yeah, yeah. Well, It'd you and five million, you and five million others voting early, so I'm just wondering whether the queues are actually longer in the pre-poll than they are actually on the day. Um, well, funny you should say that. I was talking to someone just the other day who said that pre-polls, I think it was in the last election, were about two hundred fifty thousand or three hundred thousand, something like that. And and this year we're already at 500,000. So, yes, pre-polls are much higher this election already. You are so far behind the times, Nigel. I can, <laughs> oh, I can, I can, I can inform you that um, as of Tuesday, as we were recording this, it's over a million. Oh, and go. it's going to be 5 million by the end of next week. So um, that's a lot of people wow. queuing in pre-polls. Wow. So, um, yeah. It's huge. It's that's huge. really material. That's, a, that's like unprecedented. Well, that's about one third of the voters. Yeah. So um, where are they all going? Are they all going to Intersolar? Like, me? well, they're either going to Intersolar or they're going to my son's marriage or Jane oh. Caro's daughter's <laughs> marriage. No, that's one of the, one of the two, clearly. <laughs> one of those three, or, the, or they've got something better to do on a Saturday. I don't know. Yeah. You know, maybe they play Saturday sport. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, mm. Maybe they're just doing everything they can to avoid the sausage sizzle. Yeah. Um, who knows? But um, anyway, hey, listen. Um, in the lead up, um, um, an awful lot happening. Um, particularly mm. well in, in the solar industry, which is us. The subject at hand mate um we've got some data out from sunwiz today um sunwiz of course is one of our sponsors pv cell along with solar analytics and um, here's an early thank you to to those but sunwiz um the latest update uh, for the Solar installation, small rooftop solar in April is 157 megawatts. Mm, 13% and, down um, on the month before. Well, yes, I think we can blame um, Easter and Anzac Day and... Um, look and the Smart Energy pe- Conference. The Smart Energy <laughs> Conference. People are just too busy partying and yeah. in, installing stuff. But um, look, there's normally an April downturn. Um, what's yep. going to be interesting in the next couple of months is how Victoria goes. Victoria is still topping with 41 megawatts in April but um, I guess the anecdotal stuff that we hear is that the sort of the phones have um, have stopped ringing um, mainly because as you'd probably ex- expect if people can see rebates happening in a couple of months time then maybe they may, may defer their purchase and um, 
You've been talking to a few people and wondering how we can avoid these sort of um, solar coasters, as you classically named this whole thing um, many, many years ago. Yeah, it's a, you know, Victoria is a really, really interesting one because there's, a, you know, um, it, it really highlights the intricacies of this because when you break down the total number of, of, of rebates that... Um, you've got installed systems, plus you've got systems that have been approved for rebates uh, and are yet to be installed, um, which is a fairly substantial chunk. Uh, so they're people who've basically signed up and said, yeah, I'm going to go ahead, but haven't yet. And then there's also um, you know, quite a number that are just kind of out there that are potentially going to go ahead based on a variety of circumstances, but are sort of sitting in another bucket. So you, know, you can sort of see the scenario for the government where they're looking at it saying well look in the worst case scenario our budget is blown and you know they can only pull so much money out of the budget they budgeted for x amount so you know you can kind of see the scenario um uh, that's led them to the, make the decision they have but the reality is you talk to the guys in victoria and the phones have just stopped ringing or, or, or people aren't converting um and and so there's been a huge amount of effort and and um, particularly led by the cc and, and a bunch of other great people down in in victoria um uh, meeting up with solar victoria and trying to uh, set mechanisms in place to give more transparency about this uh, going forward so that people can see with a bit more advanced notice that hey looks like you know we're going to run out of rebates this month um so you know get ready for that kind of thing so yeah it's um it's a good litmus but by all accounts you know, despite the predicament that the victorian uh, well, Solar Victoria have found themselves in, and the state government have found themselves in. Uh, it would appear that they're quite open to trying to solve this going forward, which is which is good news. We we need to wait and see, but it looks like they're they're um, they've got their their ears wide open, which is which is all you can ask, really. Well, good. Um, that's good because um, it'll be needed too. Because if the um, federal government, um, if Labor wins the next election. Um, then they're going to have quite a major um, battery storage rebate um, coming up. So they're going to have to manage that one as well. Um, mm. Up in Queensland, um, people are not so happy. Um, just chaos oh, no. and confusion up there and um, all sorts of things. It seems that the government is trying to backpedal on its... Um, it, it, look, as far as I can tell, and maybe you can help me out here, I mean, I, I, can't, I don't think anyone can actually work out what the hell's going on, but the suspicion is, is that the government's kind of written into the law that um, not even apprentices can actually sort of work on these, um, stacking these panels on the solar farms. Um, just to recap for the people not aware, basically these new rules have basically banned anyone but electricians from stacking and sort of, you know, transporting um, solar modules around a solar farm under construction, even if there's actually no particular electoral work at hand. And um, one of the issues here is that, well, we're going to get enough electricians, qualified electricians who are happy just to spend their days stacking and carrying because that's kind of not what they're trained to do. Um, people are worried about finding electricians. People are worried about costs. And other people are just worried about the complete confusion over this damn thing. And it actually comes into force next week, mm. um, next Monday, I think. Mm. Um it's ridiculous. So there's confusion about the status of apprenticeships. Can they actually be allowed to do this? You know, this is this part of the learning experience, stacking modules and things around the place. Um, what some people sort of say, well, it's not in the legislation. Other people say it's in the advice to people. But are you going to take that advice if it's actually not in the legislation? It seems like it's all over the bloody shop. And um, and there's you know concern about um, you know all this stuff 
was apparently because of all these accidents that um, that happened in the solar farms with untrained people. But when they actually provided the data, it seems that um, most of the accidents actually happened with the trained electrical people. So go figure. Exactly. And, and I think that's really right at the hub of this. And this is what I was trying to do. I was up in Brisbane last week and actually met some people who... Um, were directly involved in some of the large solar farms and spoke with a number of them. I also spoke with the Electrical Trade Union from Queensland um, and spoke to to a variety of people to try and get as many perspectives as I could. And the, the core question that I kept coming back to, Giles, was... Where did this come from? What, what what started this? Given that we have electrical standards, we have uh, regulations and rules in place already, and so you know, what was it that actually prompted this uh, this incredible reaction? Um, and and who was driving that reaction? And that was what I was really really interested in. And um, I, I heard some really really interesting stories about uh, one large solar farm in particular, um, which. Uh, the EPC contractor who won the project, and I'm not going to mention any names, but but they appointed a subcontractor. That subcontractor, it would appear, was very, very inexperienced in um, in solar, uh, in how to deal with DC cabling in particular, in how to deal with um, you know a large scale solar farm, um, and in terms of how to do uh, good geo work. And um, the result of that was a number of incidents on that particular. Uh, farm, uh, that solar farm, um, and and that seems to be one of the major catalysts for you know sparking this investigation and sparking the reaction. Uh, but interestingly, you know, and and I agree that the the regulations that are written are utterly confusing and bamboozling. I read through them again the other day, and I agree they're contradictory um, with previous statements that have been put out. Um, when I spoke to a senior guy at the ETU in Queensland, he made the point that. From their perspective, as soon as a solar panel is bolted down to a frame or attached in any way to a frame, irrespective of whether it's plugged in or not, it theoretically then becomes part of the earthing system, so it's part of an electrical system, and and that's the line that they draw. So up until that point, from um, one of the senior guys in the ETU's perspective, um, he didn't see a problem with that, and indeed the rules seem to be reflecting that now. Um, I mentioned in one of our earlier discussions about this, the idea of apprentices and, and less skilled people pulling cables through conduit, and in some circumstances that is specifically mentioned as acceptable as well, under, of course, appropriately levels of supervision so the the trick here is that what they've done is rushed this through they've ignored the feedback of a number of parties there's a lot of conjecture about whether people were actually agreement with it or not um uh so it it looks like a a a, a sort of knee-jerk reaction to something that's not really been clear clearly and concisely put through and indeed contradicts itself and contradicts some of the existing regulations so you know um i think sanity needs to prevail here and the queensland government needs to just take a breath or the the regulator's office needs to take a breath and realize that a given that the vast majority of these incidents incidents involved licensed electrical contractors they're not actually changing anything they're not changing anything at all by simply you know pushing out a non-licensed people because the vast majority of accidents happen by licensed people so they're not actually going to achieve very much at all uh, when you come right down to the core of it 
Well, it seems to me that the very minimum they should do is actually just delay the implementation because it's pretty clear Indeed. to everyone at the moment. And it would seem to me from people who've talked to the unions, from people who've talked to the government, from people who've talked to the solar companies and the subcontractors and everyone, that this is um, a bit of a major stuff up. It's not clear. Um, really cool heads have got to prevail here. Um, the large-scale solar farms are affected and going to be hit by costs and delays and what have you. Mm. It's the bigger rooftop solar guy, the commercial guys, who are really screaming because they're really hamstrung by this um, and yeah. could um, and, and could really suffer. So um, yeah, and I think and I think rooftop is particularly hurt by this, particularly down in the smaller sort of you know 100, 101 kilowatt, for example, or one hundred and fifty or two hundred kilowatt jobs. That's where it's really um, going to be impacted by this kind of stuff. So I'm with you. Sanity must prevail here. Um, really implore the um, uh, the um, electrical safety office to give the industry sufficient time to react to this and acknowledge the fact that the vast majority of incidents happened involving licensed electrical contractors anyway so you're not actually going to achieve very much yeah quite so quite so hey look um, i was just looking at my laptop as you were um talking away then it just um i just two little interesting figures i want to just take from warwick's data oh. um one is um the act is at 99 megawatts so it's just about to get to 100 megawatts which is must be very exciting for all the people in the act <laughs> and the other one is that new south wales is about seven megawatts short of two gigawatts in capacity so wow. that's pretty interesting and I'll tell you some interesting things on why I want to mention that is that because um, the AEMO quarterly dynamics report came out um, on Tuesday, I've written a couple of stories already, but I've got another couple up my sleeve, and they just essentially point to the fact that how rooftop solar is just really changing the um, equations in the grid. Um, in WA, it's actually reduced summer peak demand to um, the same level as winter peak demand. Wow. Because peak demand happened in the afternoon in Perth, um, because of the amount of rooftop solar there, it's just basically clicked. So the grid demand, I mean, underlying demand is obviously high because people are turning on their air conditioners, but basically grid demand is down to what, what it is in winter peak. And in the rest of the national electricity market, it's fascinating just to see to what extent um, rooftop solar has actually clipped the peak, um, particularly in the last summer, which was the hottest on record with the highest demand in many states and the highest prices would have been a lot worse without that rooftop solar there. And there's one beautiful graph, which I'm going to publish on Wednesday, which just illustrates the amount of solar that goes into the grid each day on average and the amount of coal capacity um, and gas that that actually forces out on average each day. So it goes back to the old saying is that you throw a bit of, for every kilowatt hour um, of, um, of solar you put on the roof, um, you can pretty much count that it gets rid of a kilowatt hour of uh, fossil fuel generation. So really interesting just to see the changing shape um, of um, of that. And, um, you know, that takes us to another thing we had just before this podcast. We are just talking about um, another podcast we had last week, the Energy Insiders podcast with the... Um, Bruce um, Miller. With Bruce Miller from Advisium. Yeah. I listened a, to that. I listened to that. Listened it, was to that. A, it was a fabulous podcast. It was... Bruce is a really interesting cat and he, and he really, really knows his stuff and he has this lovely, eloquent way of simplifying what is a very, very, very complex system. And I really urge listeners to, to, um, to take a listen to that interview because it, he also highlights 
really nicely some really, really good examples that have been completely overlooked about the benefits of, of particularly solar in the network. And, and, and as you say, you know, we're seeing example after example after example after example of the benefits being uh, delivered mm. through and, and, and the flow on benefits are hard to measure. Um, and the fact that, the, you know, the network is just, um, the NEM is just struggling to keep pace with, um, with the change. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and part of that discussion, and look, I'm sure Bruce is delighted that someone's finally called him a cat. Um, um, <laughs> the implication being a cool cat. Um, because it's pretty nerdy stuff. But look, he just takes us through um, frequency, voltage, system strength, all these key issues which are kind of thrown around like confetti in general discussions. Mm. And yes, they are all issues. What's fascinating about Bruce's discussion is how simply he talks about them, the imagery he talks about them. He's like driving a mm. car without a steering wheel, like mm. going across a bridge, various things. And his point is that he's not entirely convinced that the solution is being picked right now by the um, institutions and the regulators regulators are maybe not the smartest ones and maybe there is a better way to go and I just think it's a fascinating discussion because these are the sort of discussions we're going to need to have um, Indeed, um, he, going he forward. Get, the, his, the, his description of, you know, when he gets right down to the nub of it, this it really comes down to this fact that, you know, everyone's kind of hung up on baseload and this this thing that we need, all this heavy inertia in the grid. And, and he was able to very, very eloquently and, and descriptively, um, and, and he was referencing data from IEMA or the AR or someone, I think, when he talked about the fact that actually the grid doesn't need that, uh, doesn't need that at all. Um, you know, there, there, there is more than one way to have a resilient, reliable, low-cost grid. And um, his, his work and investigation into that sphere is really fascinating. Absolutely. So um, that's on Energy Insiders, and you can also find that on your um, on our website on Renew Economy, and also on your favourite podcast platform. Um, just to thank our sponsors again, um, PV Cell from um, Sunwiz and Warwick Johnson. Check out um, what they've got to offer, and um, also Solar Analytics. And um, I think we're just going to give you a bit of a free plug for something, aren't we, Nigel? Well, before we do, before we mention that, because we've got some exciting news, but um, uh, I would like to urge listeners to leave us a review um, because reviews really, really make a big difference to how we're found and where we appear on the net. And um, I did an interview with a podcaster the other day about doing podcasting. And um, we, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen, Giles, but we actually, we actually do all right, mate. We do pretty well. We got a pretty good rap from from Timbo. He's got a top ranking forecast. But one of the things that he highlighted is that if if there are listeners out there, and we love our listeners um, dearly and get great feedback from them, um, but click a button, give us a like, leave us a review. Really makes the world of difference to us. Indeed, no, that'd be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. Now, look, what's going on in the um, solar monitoring world, um, Nigel? Well, what's really interesting, and, and I'll try to make this as unpluggy as possible, but a little heads up for our customers and maybe our potential customers is that we're about to deliver a price reduction to the market. Um, and the real news in this story is that the growth and the scale and the volume um, benefits are starting to flow through now. And that's what has enabled us to deliver some savings. It's all about economy of scale in this market. So the exciting news is is, is, is um, not just that our customers can get our hardware a little bit cheaper than they could uh, previously when the new prices take effect, but what it's really demonstrating is that monitoring is reaching scale. There was a great 
um, little graph that uh, Finn Peacock put up on his website the other day where they'd quizzed end users and something like 65% of end users were now insisting on consumption monitoring. So there's been a huge shift in the market. We're part of that and um, it's wonderful to be part of a company that's seeing the benefits of that to the to the extent that we can now say we can bring our prices down. So that's, that's a real litmus for the markets. We're a canary in the solar coal mine, Giles. Canary in the solar coal mine. I'm sure there's another way to express that, but um, <laughs> well done. And um, and um, look, without sort of pissing in your boots, um, um, I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> that, uh, um, everyone who everyone who has um, rooftop solar or is even thinking about rooftop solar should probably get a monitoring device because um, it's actually the best way to give you information of when you're using power and how much you're using. Um, certainly a lot more visibility than anything you can use sensibly from one month or three month data. Now, um, onwards to crap solar. Now, here mm. we go. People are avoiding, people are offering solar panels at 17 cents. So what does, does sound very cheap? I uh, don't suppose that they're very, 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 very good ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and look, I think, um, you know, interestingly, I think this could well be a new world record. This was a price that uh, a, 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 an average solar dealer quoted that he was able to buy direct from a manufacturer uh, by the container load, which is not a huge volume of product. And to be able to get solar panels at 17 cents a watt, Giles. I mean, when I started in this industry, we were selling solar panels for over $10 a watt. And now to think at 17 cents, that's about 50 bucks for a panel. Um, but, you know, we know the brand. I'm not going to say it, but we know the brand involved. They've got a terrible reputation in Australia. They have a track record of failures. They have a track record of changing brands, of changing suppliers. Um, and 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 walking away from support as fast as they uh, can um, so it's not representative of what a good product costs by any sense of the imagination however it is a remarkable low um, a remarkable remarkable low and 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 you know I, I i read stuff about the us's continued drive to get prices down um, they're talking i think it was it was tesla who were talking about trying to get below two bucks a watt on a roof and you just go good lord Australia um, is is in a, in a really weird place when it comes to low prices, and this is an all-time low, historic low that may in fact never have been seen before at uh, at the solar dealer level. Bloody hell. Um, well, just going back to um, the normal warning is that if you do see things which are incredibly cheap, it's probably too good to be true. Mm. Um, and, um, and and please avoid. That takes us on to our next bit of um, next bit of uh, our next topic i guess and i guess it's probably a result of because of this discounting but one of the top um, pv brands is considering pulling out of the australian market so it's more indeed uh, and again no names but um you know i, I was chatting uh, I, I chat with lots of people but chatting with one of the leading brands um they made the comment that you know despite great success in australia despite growth despite you know achieving a premium for their for their products questions continued to be asked and going back 15 20 years when i was in the pv manufacturing space i used to have the same debate giles where the us guys or the european guys will say hang on i can sell the same solar panel for you know 30 or 40 or 50 percent more in our market why on earth would we ship them to australia and i'd struggle to get product down here from time to time but for whatever reason with the changes in the market now um, there's a ton of low cost product down here and and what that means for this particular manufacturer is they've said look 
you know, at the price point that we're at now, we simply are having trouble rationalising how we're going to support this for 25 years. There's not enough in it. And when you think of it with 50 bucks a panel, that doesn't leave any profit. It doesn't leave any room for support. It, it, it certainly doesn't leave room for, you know, amortising the cost of making sure that if there's a problem with that panel in 15 or 20 or 25 years, it can be supported. And, and so some of these large manufacturers of big brands are now really serious seriously um, considering whether they continue in Australia or not. And this is the the downside of being the cheapest market in, in, in the world is there's a point at which you go too low and uh, arguably Australia is there. Yes, I think it's uh, fair to say that never has so much crap been put on so many rooftops in such a in in in, in such a something country. Mm, mm. <laughs> just a just a just a borrow a phrase, um, which yeah. is unfortunate because um, yes, um, it is unfortunate, and I guess it's some way that um, you know Australian consumers fall victim to to over the phone marketers and door knockers and um, and advertisements for cheap for um, really cheap stuff, but. Um, and maybe it says something about um, how quickly we buy and sell houses that we don't seem to care what so much or enough about what it is that we put in the roof. But um, anyway. Indeed. And and you, you gave a great, um, a, another interview with Christian Brower from Luft University, which I listened to just this morning, actually, which was really fascinating on a broad range of topics. But what he talked about was the learning curve and how PV had come down by 40% over the last 10 years, which has been a pretty consistent story across different technologies like our silicon chips and various other things. Been pretty consistent in the PV industry as well. Nice big price reductions. But there comes a point at, at, you know, at which you simply can't continue to drive price down much more because you've got it as low as it can and it'll it'll ultimately it'll be plateauing and uh, questions are now being asked about you know how how much lower can you go whilst maintaining quality whilst maintaining profitability and whilst maintaining support um, and in fact uh, going back up to um, a broader response on this question of the year I think uh, that I saw on Facebook from an end user Giles on this on this big topic and the question that they put was if you can't afford higher priced solar is it still worth going ahead even with budget solar and I thought that was just a brilliant question because it prompted a huge array of responses from all sorts of people in the industry, out of the industry, and consumers, everyone else saying, oh, well, I you know, I bought cheap solar, it's saving me money, and you know, if it breaks down in three years, I don't care, I'll just replace it, because it was so cheap. And, and, and there was a really interesting debate about whether cheap crap solar um, is actually worth the money. And, um, and, and I think there's, a, there's still a big learning curve that our industry and and our consumers are going through to understand you know to understand the answer to that question and um you know i mm. uh, I, th- I think it's a really really interesting question it is an interesting question and particularly if you start thinking about recycling and just sort of the waste and the use of just sort of you know you know the idea that you might sort of replace your panels every three years or something like that is um really quite sort of anathema to me um In, even indeed, if it doesn't work out on a cost per dollar thing or whatever but um just yeah, yeah we, we, we we've really just as a whole sort of you know we've just got to be smarter about everything that we do we do I think. and and, yeah. and you know it's it's 
it's so enticing to think, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just replace it in three or five years. Well, you know, okay, great. But you know, the reality is no one, no one, no matter whether they love a bargain or not and buy at the bottom end of the market, no one really wants to have to go through this all over again every three or five years. Why would you? Why would you want the aggravation to have to, to, have to swap your whole solar array out every three or five years? It makes no sense. You know, if you do it right, do it once, do it well, uh, forget it for 20 years, you know. So Absolutely. I think... I think consumers are still learning that. Mm-hmm. Um, we read a little story today um, about um, how many solar panels or how much solar you might need to um, have an EV. A lot of people are thinking about EVs at the moment, and that's certainly reflected in the increased or the dramatic um, increase in traffic that we've got in our new EV-focused website, The Driven, um, going gangbusters, which is fantastic. So, And one of the big questions that comes through is, you know, well, how much solar do I need mm. uh, for my electric vehicle? And... Um, can I actually charge my electric vehicle with um, my own rooftop solar panel? And the answer is, well, most days, yes, particularly if you're just sort of topping up as you're going along. Um, if you're going from uh, an empty battery to a full battery, then probably not. Um, you're going to have to sort of draw down from the grid unless you've got a real big system and um, a whole bunch of battery storage. But just sort of, you know, if you're every day topping up on based on an average 40 to 50 kilometre drive, um, then, um, then absolutely. So um, that, Nigel, is a segue into our EV. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you another plug because you've been you've been punching out some such good stuff. In fact, record-breaking numbers on your website, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, 40, 40 million page views on Renew Economy. 40, we've gone over forty yes. years. Forty million. Good 40 lord, million. we've contributed to at least ten of those. It's unreal. Oh, more than ten. No, no, that's the number of t-shirts we've sold. Um, <laughs> One of, there was a great article. There was a great article that I read about uh, the electric vehicle uh, energy consumption versus swimming pools, for example, uh, that someone put up on your website, and it prompted me to actually drag out a whole bunch of statistics um, and look at a variety of appliances in the home: swimming pools, fridges, ovens, air conditioners, compared to electric vehicles. And uh, using some of the numbers from that article and a little bit of research, I was able to find. Um, um, air conditioners, ovens, and swimming pools are three appliances that use more annual energy on average uh, than you would need for an electric vehicle, firstly. So there's, there's a whole bunch more energy required just for those conventional things that are already in people's homes. Secondly, uh, one, two, three of those uh, air conditioners, ovens, and swimming pools actually have peak demands higher uh, th- often uh, than an electric vehicle, and that's assuming um, that's um, sorry, that's daily kilowatt hours on average. There was uh, there was two, I beg your pardon, ovens and air conditioners that have higher peak demands, uh, and, and and cruddy pools may well have that as well. Can you send that to me? Because I was going to do a big slapdown of this absolute garbage article I found in the Australian from a couple of weeks ago, written by Robert Godleepson, who's a wonderfully respected journalist. You know, um, been around for years and years and years, probably too many years now. He got an Order of Australia for services to journalism, but crikey, he shouldn't get one for ser- services to information about electric vehicles. <laughs> he wrote this absolute nonsense about how he'd heard from one of his mates that in one street in in, in inner city Melbourne. There's three or there's five Teslas in the single street, and when three of them are charging at the same time, the lights go out. Oh, God. 
and, and you're just going, are you kidding me? Um, like even if there were three phase and using 22 um, kilowatts, um, they're still not going to put the lights out in the street. If you think about, you know, if they've got three phase in the house, it's because the, the, the local grids allow them to do that and is taking that into, into account. Into consideration, it's just, that's um, right. That's it's right. just astonishing. But what, what was amazing was just where this article got reproduced and cited and quoted and stuff like that. And it's just it's just the astonishing amount of absolute claptrap that you can find in the Murdoch press um, about electric vehicles. This morning, I um, I stole the Daily Telly from the um, from the local cafe because I couldn't believe it and I wanted to have reference to it. <laughs> when I um, there you go, I've stolen a I've stolen a Murdoch um, paper. It was probably given free anyway. Um, but yeah, now this was about how long it would take you to drive from Sydney to Surfers Paradise and to Dubbo and to Genderbine in an electric vehicle. Um, absolutely astonishing and mostly based on the fact that um, people who drive petrol cars apparently don't stop. Mm. No, they don't stop at all. They don't yeah, stop to. Right. They, don't, they don't go to the toilet. They don't get petrol. They um they, they just. They're really missing the they point. They're really missing point. It's astonishing. It's, you know, it is astonishing. And, you know, we've seen this before. We've seen attacks on solar before saying, you know, solar's going to melt the grid and, um, you know, we, we've got to stop it. We've got to stop it. We've got to stop it. And we've seen the, the um, penetration rates of solar and wind go up and up and up and up and up and up to huge levels. And, in fact, as Bruce demonstrated in the conversation you had with him, there's actually a whole lot of benefits that flow. And equally, like anything, it needs to be managed. It needs to be managed intelligently. We need to have networks that are designed to cope with it, to be able to measure it, to be able to see it. Um, and we need signals that are correct to get people to manage that load in exactly the same way that they did for air conditioning and for hot water systems and for other loads that are not dissimilar. And uh, so, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I watch, I watch um, and, and groan and roll my eyes and just walk away quietly when I watch my family head into the kitchen and slap the eight kilowatt oven on and put the two kilowatt induction stove on and put the the kettle on and put the toaster on and put the rice cooker on everything comes on at once and i know exactly that's a big peak load that's just whacking the network and um Marge, why aren't you policing this and what the hell are you doing with an eight kilowatt oven I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing, Giles. I'm using the benefit of hindsight of 17 years of marriage and focusing on the big issues. That's exactly what I'm doing. So, you know, um, our system can cope with it. Our, our little old rented home can cope with that. Uh, it's not the ideal way to use energy by any means. And if there were some signals that my kids could understand or that... Um, my uh, my beloved partner could understand that were meaningful and tangible that said, well, maybe if you don't turn them all at once, I could give you some benefit because that'll help the network. Of course, we'd all change our behaviour, but at the moment, the, the signals are, are uh, impossible for most end users to understand. Absolutely. But quickly, let's go through some good news. Now, a couple of interesting developments. Um, Vmoto, the Perth-based, um, actually listed company, makes electric bicycles and um, other things. It's now going to be making an electric scooter, um, you know, the, the, the two-wheeled, um, the two-wheeled, um, I guess you'd call them mopeds, really, wouldn't you? Um, for 
Ducati of all people. That's right. An Australian-made electric motorcycle for Ducati. Well, not a, not quite Australian-made. So it's not, this company's fascinating. V Moto is the company. They're based out of Perth and have been around for a while. I've been watching. They're actually on the on the stock exchange, so you can watch their share price, which had a nice boost from this. Um, but they manufacture in China. It's mostly run by a bunch of Chinese guys who seem to be some of them based in Perth, but most of their production goes into China. So they're Australian-based company but predominantly manufacturing in China for the Chinese market and a little bit into other markets. And they've done pretty well at building some great little basic electric scooters and, and, and you know, good on them, somehow convincing Ducati to enter this market with... Uh, a very soft approach of simply rebranding and, and applying what is one of the world's great motorcycling brands to a scooter to create a premium product and which they can sell for a little bit more. And the images of it look fabulous. It looks like a really nice, you know, sporty, zippy little electric scooter. Of course, the reality is it's only got a 2.7 kilowatt um, uh, motor. It is a Bosch motor. It'll only do about 45 k's an hour. and only do 60 k's of range. So it's very much a, 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 an inner urban commuting um, run around type product but that's where um, you can get in at low cost it's where a lot of people who are doing those sort of low speed low range commutes with perfect vehicle for so many people as we know hundreds of millions of them in, in china or tens of millions of them in china already what really um, intrigued me about this was one the success of an australian-based company you know uh, overseas who i'm trying to learn more and more about and secondly i hadn't picked up that ducati are owned by volkswagen and the volkswagen group as we know as a result of dieselgate are being pressured in all sorts of ways to compensate or deliver programs or vehicles or, or, or compensation in some cases in the US in particular, um, they're finding all sorts of ways to try and make good on Dieselgate. And I can't help wondering whether simply going to a brand, one of their brands, which happens to be Ducati, and saying, look, just get a little electric scooter out there. It'll get you into the big Chinese market. Don't worry about it being performance. Don't worry about anything. Just get something on the road. Um, so I think that's the really interesting part of this is that it, it, I'm speculating that it's the VW group pressure on Ducati that may well have have pushed this along and, and made it sort of apparently come out of the blue. And secondly, I don't know if you'd picked up, Giles, but um, there were some renders released today of a Ducati fully electric sports bike, which I've immediately made my new screensaver because it looks amazing. <laughs> glorious, glorious red electric hypersport motorcycle. Uh, which is what they're talking about delivering in, in another year or two. Um, so really interesting, though, I think that um, you know, the Volkswagen Group-owned Ducati are now uh, getting a little electric scooter out. Pretty exciting, pretty exciting. And, I think um, so. Just, yeah, look. You've solved my problem. Here I am sitting so, here waiting for a Tesla Model 3, wondering what right. the exchange rate's going to do. I mean, look, for the first time today, I actually took interest in the Reserve Bank decision on the interest rates. We're thinking, <laughs> God, if they cut interest rates again, the dollar goes down and my price of my bloody Tesla 3 goes up again. And you didn't want the auto drive or autopilot? That was well, that's right. Well. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have the autopilot. Although um, Elon Musk does tell me now that um, if I do get the autopilot, the car will be worth twice as much. <laughs> In in a oh, few years, because oh. it would be um will be appropriate as a robo taxi and stuff like that. But oh, I mean, who knows? So that's, yeah. that's interesting. In it fact, Elon Musk was it was pretty interesting. Um, his stuff about um or, um self driving or autonomy and stuff like that, and their plans to have a million. You know, they have a million cars on the road 
which he says will be have full self-driving capability um, and um, they're looking to have a bit of a robo fleet take on Lyft and Uber um, with robo taxis now. Wow, um, and they've already got the cars on the road and they've got people to buy them already. So all they've got to do is send the program through saying, oh, I can see that, Giles. Well, you can see that. I I'm not too sure if the regulators are going to see that, though. No, um, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but wow, interesting concept because he's already got the cars out there. Well, it is interesting. It's going to be fascinating to see how that works and where that can work and how the regulators deal with it. Um, the other interesting part of it is that because Teslas are using cameras rather than LiDAR, which is this sort of laser-based thing that all the other um, automakers are using, um, you know, um, they're actually doing this, uh, this self-driving at about between one hundredth and one two hundredth of the cost of all their competitors. I saw just that. Imagine- if you just imagine that. Now, look, there's a few things. They've got to refine this a bit because, look, they, they reckon they're twice as safe as humans. But, you know, to be fair, that's great. And if that, you know, if we had half the people, um, you know, half, half the lives saved, that would be fantastic. But you can just imagine that because of all the media scrutiny and the legal scrutiny and the insurance, they're going to have to do a lot better than that before people allow sort of robots to go around and drive um cars um but it certainly it's fascinating. Does, does, it is fascinating it is, it is fascinating, fascinating. And, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an issue where our, our kids are going to have to deal with i suspect uh or maybe your grandkids giles because you're a little bit older than me but but you know speaking of your age um and your dilemma with your tesla i have found a solution for you to wrap up this week <laughs> because i couldn't help the henny kilowatt the henny kilowatt i i was I mean, I love it when you see stories about historic electric vehicles because you go, holy moly, I didn't even know this electric vehicle existed. I've got a little library of vintage electric motorcycles going way, way back into the 30s and 40s, which uh, were, were, were bizarre. But the Henny Kilowatt, um, envisaged in the uh, mid-50s, um, and and there happens to be one for sale, which is right up your alley, Giles. It's a 1960 model. Uh, it's uh, adorned in in a lovely shade of rust. Uh, nearly nearly as young as me, and um, nearly my colour. That's right. That's, that's right. Kind of rounded on the top, like you. Only nine only nine thousand dollars US. Which I tell you, if I was in the US, I'd I'd be snapping this up. There were only forty three of these cars actually uh, made in the end. They they were converted Dauphine, which is a, a brand of car originally out of France, made in Mexico, uh, and uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a cute era car from the late 50s in the end most of them were used by utility companies interestingly who in the late 50s early 60s were interested in testing the concept of electric transport and and lo and behold they they managed to pull some money together and develop this technology it weighs about a ton can do almost 100 k's an hour allegedly can travel for about 100 kilometers allegedly which is quite remarkable for a car from you know 1960 um but the, the one thing that Put me off. It's only a two-seater, firstly, Joel. So just you and the missus. Just a two-seater. Doesn't look like a two-seater. It's only a two-seater because in the back they took the seats out to put the batteries in. No, the batteries are in the sort of in the trunk area, I gather. But where the rear seat is, there's now just a carpet panel, and there's a photo of it. And if you pull the panel down, there's this array of antique and rather deadly-looking contactors and micro-switches and bus bars and all these big, heavy cables just covered by a piece of carpet. 
So, you know, you don't want to tilt your seat back too far because if the springs hit it, you're going to short the whole system out, which is a little bit of a downside. But the trick was apparently it enabled you, if you had a dead battery, which must have been, they were expecting you to have dead cells or dead batteries, you could pull the, roll the carpet down, get into this electrical panel, this death panel where everything was live and you could swap switches over and, you know, chop and change to change the operating voltage to get you home. So they were thinking about some interesting things. Perhaps that was what the Queensland government were worried about. It wasn't the solar farms, it was the Henny Kinawats. <laughs> and people hopping into the back seats and fiddling around with the batteries and all the live wires. That's what it that's, is. That's, they must have got wind of your your pending purchase of the Henny Kilowatt. I can see it in your driveway, mate. I, uh, well, I can I see it. I, can see to, it. I urge you to get in. Oh well, yeah, I can see it. It, it, it. It's a lovely two-tone as well, so you know that'll just um, that'll just go absolutely fantastic with um, maybe with my surfboard. Um, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Well, look, Nigel, um, fantastic, and you're off to the um, Intersolar in Munich next um, next week. You are going to behave, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, I have grand plans. I've got a bunch of meetings set up. Um, we've got some partners in Australia and overseas who um, who uh, were really keen to uh, to see us over there. We're really keen to get over there and have a look and check in on what's happening globally. And we we regularly do this to see what's happening in other markets. And uh, so yeah, five days in uh, in Munich for me. Um, I'm, I'm over, I, I think there's a contingent of at least fifty or sixty Aussies over there. We should be fairly easy to spot. I would imagine, and uh, I have it on good authority, all the good bars to go to and uh, all, where all the good parties are. So, yeah, wish me luck. <laughs> and will you be doing a few interviews for us, uh, recordings for the uh, Solar and Silas podcast? I, 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 the thought did cross my mind, Giles. <laughs> um, the thought did cross my mind. I will certainly be taking would, notes. Taking notes. Take, take a recording device. Well, I've got a phone. Uh, yeah, I yeah. If you've got a phone, you have to stick it right under, right up under the nostrils. Yeah, yeah. I've got. Well, look, we, you and I can talk about that offline, but I'm sure there's a way to do some interviews. And if I find I just, some fascinating people, I, I will. I'm just. I'm sure our listeners are fascinated by the secrets. Nigel, <laughs> thank you very much, and good luck in Munich, and um, good luck at the next um, at the poll next week. And um, yeah, dear, thanks to all our be, listeners. That'll be the post-election edition. That'll be the post-election editions. We'll be able yeah. to come up and tell people what it all means. God, post, post intersolar post-election in one edition. That, that's that's going to be a cracker, isn't it? It's going to be an absolute cracker. cracker. It's going to be a cracker. It's going to be a cracker. Okay, thanks, mate. Um, thanks to all our listeners. And don't forget, as Nigel suggested, to leave a review. Um, check out our other podcasts, um, Energy Insiders and The Driven Podcast. And we'll, we'll be back in a fortnight. Bye for now. Solar Insiders was brought to you by Solar Analytics, designers and suppliers of smart solar monitoring. Visit solaranalytics.com.au, get empowered and make the most of your home energy. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by SunWiz, the creators of PV Cell software, powerful technology for solar sales and design. With free high definition rooftop imagery in every PV Cell plan, retailers can stay ahead of the competition. Visit sunwiz.com.au. Australia's leading solar software.